Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Scott Alford. He is one of the top online business mentors and advisors, and he also owns dozens of businesses that have collectively generated tens of millions of dollars. And this done in multiple niches, countries across the world, and so forth. In his new Investing with Scott newsletter, he gives you a behind-the-scenes look into acquiring, building, and scaling businesses based on his experience of helping hundreds of entrepreneurs scale all the way up to seven and eight figures. As an entrepreneur, since he was seven, and by the time he was 16, having a million-dollar business, while ending up a million in debt and now by 31 becoming a decamillionaire, he has a massive amount of insights, understandings, knowledge, and wisdom for scaling and building a business. You can now check what he's up to by going into investing.scottalford.com. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guest that we have today. Man, he's been working on this company for quite a while, and we're going to be learning everything about building, scaling, financing. You know, he's taking his company public, too. So we're going to be talking about that process as well. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, John Bissell. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So originally born in Sacramento, and uh, you know, you've been there and you're still there, which is unbelievable. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I grew up um, yeah, in Sacramento. And Sacramento was not that it's sort of like a world-class metropolis at this point, but it's uh, it was even less of a world-class metropolis uh, back when I was growing up here. It was pretty, you know, some, sometimes people call it where the Midwest meets California. Um, and that's, you know, pretty true. So I started in California, uh, grew up relatively benign, kind of upper middle class life in the suburbs, ended up going to UC Davis for chemical engineering, and then started this company, Origin, uh, pretty close to straight out of school. Davis is close to Sacramento, wanted to be close to some of the uh, technical capabilities at UC Davis, but Davis is a bit more expensive. So ended up back in Sacramento. Um, and now, uh, you know, once you start something, it, it can be a little bit challenging to move it. And so we're still here. <laughs> now, now, out of all things, chemical engineering. Why chemical engineering? Yeah, so chemical engineering, it's, it's interesting. If you ask people how they end up in chemical engineering, you get a very similar story from the vast majority of people. 
which is that they have no idea or had no idea what chemical engineers did before they started as a chemical engineer. Uh, And they all enter the discipline because they like physics, chemistry, math, typically biology, uh, and and are, you know, particularly had a good experience with calculus in high school, something along those lines. And everybody says, yeah, well, maybe you think about being a chemical engineer. Um, So it's, it's sort of a qualification set that determines whether people end up as chemical engineers, not because they realize what a chemical engineer does. And I was the same. Nice. Now, in your case, you know, right after graduation, you know, 2008, you thought that the best thing was starting a business, you know, probably, you know, in the middle of the meltdown of the economy. What were you thinking, John? Yeah, right. Well, so (laughs) uh, that's exactly right. It was I, I was working at a spin out of a company called Aerojet, which was sort of like the original rocket company. They made Minuteman missiles and all this kind of stuff. And I remember doing this sort of nights and weekends and trying to get it started. And um, I realized uh, that we were going to sort of really, we were going to jump ship from our, our day job and go full time, my co-founder and I, Ryan Smith. And we sort of made that commitment to each other right around when I guess it would have been a little after Lehman collapsed. So literally, I mean, that was my my timeline anchor point was the the global financial crisis was in process, very much so, as we were quitting our jobs and going to start this. You know, part of the thought was that we thought we could do something better, right? That was why we started a company uh, instead of just going to work for one of the the legacy organizations was, you know, we thought they weren't tackling the modern problems um, in the way that they needed to, in, in part because back then people didn't, frankly, <laughs> didn't believe, right? They thought climate change wasn't a thing. And then in part because they're not incentivized to, right? They have uh, big existing legacy businesses. They don't need to go change a bunch of stuff to keep making money, right? And that's a really hard place to be if you want to go digest your existing business in order to do something differently that's a little better, maybe a lot better. So we 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 thought we would start a company. And I think the other part was we were sort of infected by the tech bug that started, you know, Web 2.0 was um, was thoroughly in swing in 2007, 2008. And so we kind of generalized that idea beyond software, which was in retrospect, you know, boy, are there a lot of differences between what people now call deep tech and chemicals and software or, or, or uh, the web. But, um, but that was the thought, right, was, well, if they can start companies that are huge companies from nothing, and frankly, that, that the common knowledge was that that's actually the best way to do it is not to try to change an existing company, but to start a new one, uh, then we should do that too. And um, I don't know that there was a lot more thought about it than that. <laughs> I mean, and, and I guess just for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of origin? How do you guys make money? Yeah, well, so we're a chemical technology company. And, and one of the things about chemistry and, and materials more broadly is that basically the chemical and materials industry produces all of the physical stuff that you use in your entire life, right? People think about chemicals as something esoteric that they don't interact with very often. You know, the closest people get sometimes is like pool chemicals or something like that. That's what they think of as chemicals. The reality is literally every single physical good that you use is an output at some point of the chemical industry. So everything from uh, chemicals and materials, everything from metals, uh, glass, um, your desk, your construction materials, the road base, you know, asphalt, the stuff you're wearing, right? All of it is a material that came out of the chemical industry. So that's really the industry that we're, we're involved in. Um, and so what we do is we make what we call intermediates. Um, and I call them sometimes Lego bricks. 
that you can use to make materials out of. And we make those Lego bricks that are in a, a way that makes them carbon negative, which means there's less carbon in the atmosphere after we're done making them than there was when we started. That's, that's carbon negative. We make these new Lego bricks that are carbon negative. People can use those in existing materials and dramatically reduce the carbon footprint of the materials that they're using. Or you can make new materials out of them, stuff that nobody's been able to really make at scale before. So that's what we do. We developed that technology. The way we make money is we go build plants that make those intermediates um, and we sell those intermediates. Or we you know, can set up other deals where we're providing technology and somebody else goes and builds the plant, makes it, and we, you know, we get some cut of that deal. So those are the two ways that, uh, that our business operates. And that's, those are pretty traditional ways for the chemical industry. That's the way when you have new technology, that's what you do. Now, one of the things that, uh, that is key when, when starting a company is being at the right time in history. And I'm sure that when you guys got started back in 08, you know, nobody really was talking about climate change, you know, or, or anything, you know, like this. But now, you know, it's incredible. This is like top of mind, you know, every day, all day. So how do you think that timing, you know, like has played a role in, in your guys' story? Yeah, well, so what's interesting is if you go back to the global financial crisis, there actually was, well, pre-GFC, there was a nidus of a climate movement that had started. And there were some large investors in that area too that were really putting up their own money to try to get technology rolling. And so we were sort of the tail end of that wave. Now that wave was very small. It was a little ripple relative to what we're seeing right now. But it was it was enough that it put it on our radar. We felt like there was a community, right? That there was, you know, there was stuff happening. And of course, that all went away as part of the global financial crisis. So we sort of got involved thinking, boy, there's you know a couple of companies that are doing some really interesting things here. We're going to get involved. And then sort of it all evaporated, right? And we were left. And we had to figure out our own way. What felt like pretty alone, right? It didn't feel like there were a lot of, a lot of other companies that were trying to do what we were doing. And so I think from a timing perspective, we sort of tried to get the timing right in the beginning and of course got it dead wrong. Um, well, from some perspectives. And then uh, our view was, well, look, the world needs this. We think we can add a lot of value. And so whether we've got the timing right or not, let's go develop this technology and make it happen because we think the world needs the technology. You, so we did that for, you know, 10 years and um, kept moving along and, uh, you know, gradually increasing customer demand, gradually increasing the, improving the technology, making our way through. And then, of course, as you said, now there's this, uh, really with COVID is where we saw it this enormous rise in um, interest and commitment to uh, making a difference with climate and changing people's supply chains and their products and their designs, their market, all this kind of stuff to make it happen. And so, um, so in that sense, I guess, you know, from a timing perspective, we just had enough foresight to develop the technology 10 years before we needed it. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. Now, now let's talk about the early days. Tell us about recruiting chemists, especially one of them, you know, there's a fun story there, you know, tell us about it. So early days, uh, you know, what, one of the things that I say about, well, all companies, but particularly in our space, is that credibility is one of the things that you're fighting for um, early, early on. That's, you know, you have no credibility relative to a Dow Chemical or, uh, you know, an oil major or somebody like that, right? Um, as a little startup with three or four people. Uh, and so you're, you're just constantly fighting to demonstrate that what you're doing is worthwhile and that it's going to deliver. And that includes for recruiting. And so now we, uh, just to provide some contrast, now we, you know, we get some of the best people in the entire world and everybody knows they're the best in the world, right? And they come to join Origin. 
that wasn't how it used to be, right? It used to be, you you need to get really great folks. But, uh, you know, if I go up to the the most senior um, technology person at at an oil major, when I w- when we were a four person company, they don't even respond to your email, right? Let alone come work for you in Sacramento. So we had to get really good at spotting talent that nobody else was spotting, but that was still world class. And I hadn't sort of figured this out yet, but uh, but our first technical hire outside of the founding team really was a guy named um, uh, he's now our chief scientist, uh, Michael Masuno. And he, he was referred to me by a couple other folks at UC Davis. So I, I asked some of the prof- uh, professors and grad students, you know, who was the best grad student in, in recent memory uh, that got their PhD that uh, experimentally and um, what we say on the whiteboard, which means theoretically. So experimentally the best, who is that? Who, and then who is the best um, uh, theoretically? And I figured I'd hire both of them, right? That was going to be my approach. And they said, oh, that's easy. It's actually one guy who is the best at both. This guy, Mako Masuno. So you got to, uh, you know, here's, and the person who happened to be um, making the introduction was, uh, could be a little flaky. And so um, he, he said, I'll give you his number, but I don't know, you know, you don't want me to make the introduction because I didn't show up to a game of golf recently. And now I don't think he wants to call me back, you know. So, okay. So I get his number and I call him up. And it turns out our chief scientist is, um, he's a pretty conservative guy, just sort of by, by nature. So I call him up and um He's he's sort of gotten a little bit of a briefing of who I am and what I'm going to ask. And uh, and he says, look, I uh, I sat down before I got on the call and I figured out how I was going to tell you no, because when I commit to something, I commit so wholeheartedly that um, I sort of don't leave anything in the tank. He said, and I just don't know if I'm in that spot right now. I said, OK, well, how about this? You don't have to commit. Let me just take you to lunch and we can talk about it for a little while. So uh, he goes, OK. He's a food guy. So he goes, I, I gave him a really good lunch spot. We went and he shows up and he shows up with a stack of uh, academic literature, six inches thick that he had gone through paper by paper and highlighted all of the stuff. And it was all the relevant literature that he could find. This is an enormous, I mean, this is, this is dozens, if not hundreds of hours worth of work that he had done before coming to lunch to tell me no, right? And he gives me this manila folder with all of these stacks of paper in it. He says, by the way, I just can't do it. Um, but here, I did all this research for you. And I was like, God, I don't think I've ever seen a person who is more bored in what they're doing than this guy. He, obvi- I mean, he's like desperate to do great science. And, uh, and so I said, look, well, you don't have to make a commitment, but why don't you just come over and see our labs? And he spent about six hours at our labs that afternoon. And uh, he's been working for us since. <laughs> I mean, you know, he basically never left. So it's just amazing, though, the, the idea that somebody who's so good, and by the way, I get to see him do science, right, and technology development with, with now some of the best people in the whole world, and he absolutely, uh, he's, he's as good, he's, he's even better than I hoped he would be then, right, 10 years later. But it was crazy to me that somebody who was that good could sort of uh, not get sucked up into the larger chemical industry. You know, how are they missing people that were so spectacular? And, um, and that's been sort of a question for me for the last 10 years, frankly, is, is uh, where are these folks? But that was, frankly, I think if we hadn't made that hire when we did, I don't think we would have made it. You know, it was wow. an incredible, incredible moment. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Unfortunately, in life, you know, there's not a user manual. You don't know what works for you, what's normal, uh, when you're feeling stuck, navigating some of the changes that you may be experiencing. Like maybe you're looking at giving your notice and becoming an entrepreneur, whatever that is, you know, having a therapist, you know, can really be helpful. And they're trained to help you in figuring out what's causing those challenging emotions and also, you, you get to learn, you know, with coping skills. I mean, in my case, for example, wherever I felt stuck or wherever I needed someone to coach me through it, I literally, you know, like had someone there, you know, helping me and learning with coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, whatever that was. So as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime, and it couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing business. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now, let's talk about capitalizing the business. So obviously you guys got started in 08. How has it been the process of, of capitalizing the business all the way up to the IPO that you guys did? Yeah, so it was, it was almost entirely what we would usually say venture capital based, but it wasn't it wasn't sort of standard Sand Hill Road style venture capital that we we pitched all the Sand Hill guys. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, understandable. I mean, I was I was young, particularly young men, but um, so I didn't fully appreciate it. But but I understand why, you know, this is a business where you get to spend a bunch of money to develop technology so that you have the opportunity to spend a bunch of spend even more money to sink steel on the ground. Right. You need a lot of cash to go into a business like this before you get to really um, generate sizable operating returns. Now, the flip side of that is so does anybody else who wants to compete with you, right? So you end up with a gigantic moat um, that's uh, not just money-based and resource-based, but also time-based, right? It takes 10 to 15 years to develop this kind of technology, uh, even if you're a big chemical company. So you end up in a great spot on the other side. But I see why, you know, the Sandhill guys would look at that and say, you know, Jesus, you're talking about basically a decade or more of of continued investment into this company. I, I, you know, I can just go fund this software company for far less. So we didn't get the traditional Sandhill guys, but what we did get were venture capitalists often working out of sort of their personal account, effectively investing in us, and particularly the ones who were technical and had a deep understanding of the market and the industry. 
And so we had a handful of, of folks who really were committed and saw the vision um, all the way through uh, who, who supported us until we took the company public. So how much capital did you guys raised prior to taking the company public? Because you took the company public in, in 2021. So, right. uh, you know, that was quite a, a bit of time there from 08 all the way to 2021. So how much capital did you guys raise? Yeah, circa $100 million. I, I actually don't. You would think that after all that, I would know the number down to the down to the yeah. penny, but I don't. Um, but I think it was a little north of $100 million, uh, Because up, up until today, how much capital have you guys raised in total for the business? And now to today, we've raised, you know, circa $650 million, something along those range, that range. And what is, what is it like? I mean, there's probably like a lot of folks that uh, are listening, a lot of entrepreneurs that are, you know, very, very familiar with, you know, the venture route and racing different rounds and things like that. So, so in your case, I mean, how was it, you know, taking the company public? I mean, how do you come to the conclusion, hey, you know, let's, let's take this company, you know, to the public markets and then. How do you navigate that? Because, you, you know, the private, you know, it's a little bit easier. You know, the public, you're more in the public eye. So how has it been, you know, the journey, the experience, and then also how was taking the company public? Yeah, well, I think it was, it was from a decision perspective, it was relatively straightforward um, for us. We had a, a quite sizable private round that we had lined up sort of towards the end of 2020. And we were looking at that and and it became clear that there was a window for us to take the company public as well so you know you just for for a really capital intensive business like us that's a that's a dominant part of the the sort of strategic concern is what is my cost of capital because i need a lot of it and so looking at the effective cost of capital in the private market versus the public market at that point in time it was very clear that the the public markets had lower cost of of equity capital for a company like us and so that was the direction. Now, when we saw that window open, again, we were sort of lined up for this private round. And we said, geez, I think, I think we need to take a run at the public market. And putting that together in a relatively short period of time during COVID, right? I mean, we were all working remotely. We were um, living our life on Zoom. Plus, there were all the supply chain challenges. Plus, yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, this is still true. Even even service industries were getting drawn down so aggressively. There was hard to get, you know, it's hard to get all the service that you needed from, you know, financiers and and uh, lawyers and accountants and all those kinds of things because everybody was just um, crushed with demand. And so, putting that together in the space of a relatively short period of time, um, now that that was interesting. That was challenging. And I think, you know, I I particularly remember the sort of point of no return where we said. Well, we're gonna. You didn't get to really line it up, partly just because of a resource perspective on our side. We couldn't really quite line it up where it was. You you have the private round, and you get to see if you're gonna land the public, uh, the the go public process before you let the private round go. You know, you had to bet on one before you landed it, and um, so that point of no return was uh, that was an interesting one. You know, I think I don't think we'd ever really committed. 10 years ago to the idea that we would take the company public, we always thought, you know, maybe there's a chance we'll stay private forever. Maybe we'll go public. We don't know. So, but it's a, obviously it's a notable moment, right? To take a company into the public capital markets. And people talk about um, taking companies public and then having access to those large pools of capital. What do they mean with that? 
well, I mean, there's a lot more money in the public markets than there's in the private markets. Um, it's a different kind of money, right? In some ways, you end up with a little bit more healthy kind of communication relationship, I think, or maybe maybe the 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 standard investor management relationship is a healthier relationship in the public markets than than the standard one is in the private markets. Um, but that's largely maybe just because you have less variability, right? In the private markets, your investor management relationship can be all over the place, right? You can have all kinds of different relationships there. Um, whereas in the public markets, I think there's a standard, right? You you go in, you say, this is how this is sort of how it works, this is how you communicate. Um, and so I think that's been interesting. Uh, I think in terms of pools of capital, you know, what's interesting is I think the size of a of a given pool of capital and the decision maker on it is actually somewhat similar to the size in the private markets. You know, you're talking about often a portfolio manager has a billion dollars, right? That they plus minus that they uh, can make decisions allocating, and um, that's not it's bigger, but it's not terribly different from a typical private equity um, sort of decision making threshold and pool of capital. So I think that part's actually interestingly more similar than I would have guessed. I wouldn't have known that ahead of time, but in a lot of ways, it the investor relations are not so different, you know? I hear you. Now, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of origin is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, it's an interesting world. I mean, look, what, the, the, the objective for origin is to, is to create the materials technology that's required for the human species to be successful in the next millennium, right? And I think as you look at that, the way we're approaching is, is changing the foundations of materials. So we, we don't want people to take oil out of the ground and turn that into uh, products. We want people to, um, to use carbon negative materials, right? And that means using uh, biological waste materials. So the leftovers from, uh, from harvesting wood for um, uh, dimensional lumber, uh, the leftovers from food production, um, all sorts of stuff like that, maybe purpose-grown things as well. And so I think what that set, what that that world looks like a couple things. One, um, origin type technology is the dominant technology to supply materials um, into the industry. Two, um, you actually, I, I think the world will be better off and it will be helped by this with origin technology to have fewer materials. So I think we have too many different materials that are all mixed together all the time. Some people call this the sort of mono materials. And the reason that that's important is because um, one, of course, you can, you can spend more time optimizing the production of materials if you only have a few of them. But the, the more important version is you can recycle things more easily when there are fewer materials in them. One of the major hurdles to recycling things, you know, people talk about how recycling is broken. What's broken about recycling for the most part is that stuff is made of multiple materials. And as a consequence, you can't, it, it's, it's pretty infeasible to take a product that has multiple different materials in it and recycle each of those materials. You basically just have to throw it away. And so I think having fewer materials will really drive value in that sense. So you've got origin making the materials from carbon negative sources, and then you have fewer materials that enables recycling and closing the loop on the other side. That I think is a lot of what the world looks like. And I think it's one that, you know, how do you use those materials is a different question, right? Um, people are going to develop all sorts of products there. Uh, I'm sure that'll make the world look different. But the key in my mind is that you're making all of those things differently. That's the big difference. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time 
maybe back to 08, where you were thinking about starting a business of your own. And you were able to, you know, have a sit down with that younger John and, and giving that younger John a piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, that's a good question, too. Um, I, I think that we were right very early on about our, our sort of theory of value for the technology. I think most of the, I'll say, errors or inefficiencies that we um, committed <laughs> over the, the lifetime of the company were the result of not trusting ourselves enough early on. Um, I think that we were, basically what we laid down in the very beginning as the core tenets that were required for us to be successful and the things that we needed to work on. And, you know, uh, the corollary there is, what are the things that we don't need to work on? Because once you're ready, they'll just work. We were pretty right about all of that. We weren't always sufficiently convicted about that. And so sometimes we would go explore. We would feel like, ah, oh, gosh, I've got to go figure out how to do this other thing. You know, I've got to develop my project execution capability early because I'm not sure if I, maybe I need it right now. We almost never did, right? We were, we, 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 uh, we could have been a bit faster, but probably more efficient. And I'll say certainly, uh, lower stress if we had been committed to our early theory of value. Because I think that's where we are right now, right? We actually fully agree with where we started. Um, but, you know, it took a little bit of a journey to get there. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size of Origin today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, sure. I, I don't know exactly what the last sort of disclosed number was, but call it sort of north of 150 um, employees. Lots of scientists and engineers. So uh, world, totally world-class scientists and engineers, significantly north of half are, are, are very high-quality scientists and engineers. And of course, then you need other functions as well. Uh, in terms of scale, we're, we're uh, building our first plant, Origin One, uh, commercial plant, Origin One in uh, Canada. And that's, that's a, you know, we often think of it as a small plant for us, but it's a big plant in the grand scheme of things. It's over $100 million in total CapEx. You know, it's seven stories high. Um, it's uh, multiple acres in footprint. Um, it's a it's a big asset. And then Origin Two, which we're in, uh, uh, what's called front end loading or engineering for right now, is um, and that'll be down in Geismar, Louisiana. That is a really big plant. You know, that's a 150 acre footprint, give or take. It's uh, it's a billion dollars in capex. It'll employ you know many hundreds of people just to operate that plant. Right. So, so. The scale that we're dealing with is large uh, on that sense. Um, and then on the on the market side, I think it's interesting to think about too, you know, the materials markets are a couple trillion dollars, basically. You can slice it a bunch of different ways, but call it a few trillion dollar market. It's a significant proportion of the human economy. Uh, and it's it's much more concentrated than people realize. You know, there aren't 10,000 materials companies that matter. There are about 20, <laughs> something like that. And so... What we're doing is we're starting in some of the larger components of that market. You know, a larger component is a $100 billion market um, out of that couple trillion of total materials. So PET is where we're starting uh, amongst and carbon black, a couple others. Um, and what I think is interesting is, you know, you can sort of get a sense of how big a market you have 
based on how fast you're growing, right? You're growing your backlog or your demand or whatever it is. And we are growing with a a very small sort of uh, sales force. So uh, a, a group of folks that's, um, you know, five or fewer, depending on how you count them. Um, we're growing at about a billion dollars a quarter, which really, again, gives you a sense of the scale, right? It's, it's, it's sort of shocking how much demand there is for decarbonized versions of these materials, even at premiums, right? I mean, look, there's, if there's that much demand, that means there's scarcity and that means you're going to charge more. So, uh, and, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't slow down at all. I mean, it's, it's incredible to be growing at that rate. I mean, you could think of that as from a demand perspective at a significant premium, we're growing at circa a hundred percent year on year, right? More. Wow. It's pretty well, wild. I, right time, right time in history, John. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Depends on who you are. But um, if, uh, <laughs> if you want to work for us, then uh, if you're a scientist or an engineer that would like to work for us, then you should go to our careers page. That'd be great. If you want to be a customer, then you can pretty much reach out to anybody in the entire company and they'll funnel you to the right spot. Um, if you're a partner, uh, then you can... Uh, you can probably do the same as a customer, but generally speaking, our, our website's originmaterials.com. And so you can find everything you do on there or LinkedIn. Somewhere. Amazing. Well, hey, John, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.